0: This is the Fixer Sciatica Podcast. And we are back talking about the various different medications that can be prescribed for issues like sciatica and low back pain. And today's guest is a pharmacist. I've been interviewing other pharmacists because they're the masters on the chemistry and the understanding of how medications work. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to have today's guest talk a little bit more about one of the medications that he finds a particular interest in, which is going to be muscle relaxers. What are they? What do they do? And how can they help us? So today I have Dr. Sonny Shah, pharmacist. Sonny, so good to see you.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Ashley.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about, before we go into the drugs themselves, I always get introduced to pharmacists through some really great connections, and I really appreciated your background and your desire to help people. So for the listeners who haven't quite heard your name, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the journey of where you're at today? Yeah, sure. So I've
1: been a pharmacist since uh, 2015, that's when I graduated uh, pharmacy school, went right into community, setting retail pharmacy. I come from an independent pharmacy background and uh, currently am working in a community chain. And uh, what I really like to do is create relationships between patients and myself. So that increases care, better care, better outcomes, And more customer satisfaction, that's what we, you know, that's what we really want at the end of the day. And uh, as of recent, I've been uh, looking into getting into pharmacogenomics and uh, nutrigenomics uh, testing for patient compatibility. So it's a very new and upcoming
0: frontier. Pharmacy is such a fascinating profession because, one, I mean, yes, it's part of the medical profession, but from a chemical standpoint, you have the understanding of the breakdown. You can go into, say, big pharma, which is like medication development. You can go into research. You can also go into, say, the retail pharmacy and then uh, definitely looking into the pharmacogenomics, and then I think you said neutrogenomics as well. Is that that right? Um, it's, It's really cool to be able to see the versatility of it because I remember coming up as a physical therapy student, I remember just thinking, all right, well, pharmacists are just the people who distribute the pills at the pharmacy that I go to. And I remember going through the hospital rounds which I was actually surprised that as a physical therapist, I would go do hospital rounds. It wasn't something that we were often a big part of. And so it's exciting to interact with more and more pharmacists and the the really cool knowledge. And you're absolutely right. Being able to have a good relationship with your neighborhood pharmacist gives you a huge understanding of, the medication that you're having or you're using and what are some of the things to consider, which is why we're on today's episode is to be able to discuss the medical class of uh, muscle relaxants. I think that it often gets prescribed uh, when people are experiencing pain. And I've always been so interested in regards to why this would be prescribed in the first place, but also the scientific or the, the physiological mechanisms in which these medications work. And so, Sunny, if you can, tell us a little bit more about muscle relaxants. What are what what are they uh, specifically like? What are how would someone know that they're on a muscle relaxant itself? Like, what are some of the names?
1: Yeah, sure. So muscle relaxants have been around for probably since the 50s and 60s. That's when they really were uh, pushed through like drug industry. But as early as I think the Amazon, I think there was an Amazon tribe that they would dip their arrows in a, uh, I think this poison, it was a muscle relaxant. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But uh, they used to use that to paralyze invaders and such right off the arrow. So it's been, you know, used throughout history. But as of like the last 60, 70 years, that's when they've manufactured them. So these drugs, this class of drugs, can cause the relax skeletal muscle in various ways, and I'm going to go into which one, uh, what sorts of ways they are. But they address two types of muscle issues. You got stiffness or spasticity. Uh, those are caused by MS cerebral palsy, spinal cord, brain injury. So that's one type of muscle relaxant class. But we're dealing with the twitching or spasms type of muscle issues that muscle relaxants deal with. Then, of course, it addresses sciatica, herniated discs, or spinal sten- uh, stiffness. So these are the two main classes of muscle relaxants that we're dealing with. And uh, a couple of the names that patients might be might know of are like Flexeril or Cyclobenzaprine, Robaxin, or methocarbamol, and another one called scalaxin or that the generic name is metaxalone. So those are the three main ones we'll focus on today.
0: Love it. Yeah, really interesting. I find it so fascinating that, uh, say, a chemical like this was actually used back in the day as a weapon. Um, and I think I remember, I don't know specifically. Well, maybe. I think it's like tetrodotoxin or something like that. I have no idea. But anyway, it was like these, yeah, down in the Amazon, it was like they called them poison hour frogs. They were like, I've seen pictures. They're like lime green, really cute. But you definitely do not want to touch them because that is a, that is a dangerous thing. Um, also really cool to be able to talk about the the mechanisms um, that there's two specific categories. You were talking about spasticity, which often happens with say MS. Um, and uh, usually when I look at MS and uh, I miss the other conditions, but we're looking at more of like the central nervous system, how the brain and spinal cord interact with uh, what we call your peripheral nerves. And then the second Uh, class is the, um, the spasms and stiffness, which is really more of what we're looking at, like muscle physiology, but then also the peripheral nerves. So pretty much listeners, in previous episodes, we've talked about the various different aspects of the nervous system. And we have two pieces of the nervous system. We have what we call our central nervous system, which is going to be your brain and your spinal cord. And then we have your peripheral nervous system, which is the nerves that actually exit your spine. And so when it comes to, say, treating something like sciatica, we can either look at, okay, well, what is happening with the central nervous system? Is it something that we're processing in our brain, but also is there actual spinal cord compression that is leading to improper function of the nerve itself? before it actually exits the spine, that's the central aspect. And then we look at the peripheral nature of sciatica pain, which is going to be the moment it actually exits the spine. And that's where we're looking at, possibly even some neural foraminal narrowing, or even some tight muscles, say like piriformis syndrome and everything like that. So it is important for you to either work with your practitioner or discover upon yourself is the pain that i'm dealing with is it actually something because of my back or is it deep in my back my spinal cord or my brain or is it something related to the moment that the nerve exits my spine and that's what we're looking at peripheral aspects and that will actually dictate what exercises you need to do but also it can help the clinician understand what medications could be particularly useful for that and so sunny Uh, I think you listed three different medications. I've heard Flexerol a lot, and I see that prescribed a lot. So if you can, um, when you briefly talked about the various different mechanisms, um, would you be able to break down some of the cool chemical processes that happen as a result of taking these medications? Sure.
1: Now, Ashley, I don't want to disappoint you, but a lot of these muscle relaxants, their mechanisms are still unknown. So there are some hypotheses, but they actually still don't know why they work and how they work. But Flexerone, it's uh, actually chemically, like structurally similar to a tricyclic antidepressant called amitriptyline. And it works. So most... Not only cyclobenzaprine, but the other two, the methocarbamol and the metaxalone, they all are centrally. They all work to depress the central nervous system, and the depression of the central nervous system through these drugs, it's thought to lead to the relaxation of the skeletal muscle. So that's like the general hypotheses of how these. Uh, drugs work in the body i wish i wish there was more uh like juicy chemical details but that's really all that they have put their uh, knowledge into and since these drugs have been on the market for so long it's not like uh they're gonna do any more research into what the actual mechanism is anymore they just it does it so they just go forward with it that's basically where we are at this point
0: This episode is brought to you by the Patient Advocate Program. Are you tired of not having support between your rehab sessions? Introducing the Patient Advocate Program. We're focused on your recovery and we're offering you 24-7 access to a doctorate of physical therapy. Stop waiting in line to be seen and stop spending hours doing long exercise programs. Imagine being able to get all of your care delivered straight to your phone. Best of all, it's affordable. We believe everyone deserves top-notch relief without breaking the bank. So why wait? Take control of your health today and visit ptpatient.com advocate.com and book your free call with our experts well i really appreciate um the the reality that you brought to the light i think it's really easy for and especially you'll see this uh in in pharmaceutical marketing they're gonna create like this crazy amazing beautiful diagram and you're looking at it thinking okay yeah this is gonna work but one thing that you did bring up, which I found to be extremely fascinating, was that it actually acts on the central nervous system, which we're looking at brain and spinal cord itself. So it was central nervous system. So, in, yeah, brain and spinal cord, which in my head, if I remembered correctly, if we're affecting the central nervous system, we actually have to have chemicals that actually cross the blood brain barrier. Is that is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so um, listeners out there, the blood, rate, blood brain barrier, the way it works, um, and I'm just going to share the anatomy, but perhaps, Sonny, if you know a little bit more about how things kind of get transferred, the blood brain barrier, so pretty much your brain and your spinal cord are she- is sheathed, covered in this uh, this connective tissue, which is called the dura mater. And the dura mater is actually like a thick leather sheet, and it protects um your your brain and your spinal cord from a lot of different forces. But as you know there or as you may may or may not know, there's actually what we call cerebral spinal flu, which is the fluid that kind of surrounds your brain, also it surrounds your spinal cord. And when you are say getting a cortisone injection, an epidural injection, they're actually going into that specific area. Which is why if you ever get back surgery or even an injection, they want to make sure that you keep that specific area clear because you don't want to get that specific area dirty. Now, the central nervous system, we have to cross the blood-brain barrier. So, uh, Sonny, if you, if you can, tell us a little bit more about, um, and I'm going to take a step back, these muscle relaxant medications, um, right. are they usually ingested in pill form, IV? Topical patch. What's the, what are the common ways that this is consumed?
1: Uh, so generally, what we see is an oral tablet. They're orally taken. Rarely have I seen them injected, and most likely they'll probably do that in the uh, like a hospital setting or such. But these medications, these
0: common ones, they're they're given uh, orally. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so, um, from your knowledge, Sonny, like once the the pill gets ingested. Um, What are some of the pathways or um, if you recall, because I kind of have a basic knowledge about like, what's the process like that goes into their stomach and then gets absorbed. Would you be able to share us what that journey could look like?
1: Sure. So, Obviously, when you take it in, it's going to go right into the stomach and then through the stomach and through the small intestine, it's going to be absorbed into the bloodstream. And a lot of the medications, uh, I don't know if it's been addressed before, they usually, the bloodstreams lead right into the liver. And the liver is the first point of uh, metabolism or clearing of the, you know, any sort of foreign substance medications, chemicals that you've ever taken in. They go through the liver first to be processed. Depending on the drug, we have some drugs called pro-drugs where the liver, actually pro-drugs that are actually inactive. And when they get absorbed and through the liver and they get metabolized, they become the active form. That's Those are some drugs. There's a good amount of them on the market, but um, a majority of the drugs that we take are active when they go in and uh, the liver will inactivate them or can metabolize them to a point where where their, their metabolite is also an active metabolite. So we have those kind of scenarios. And um, so once it passes through the liver, it now enters the bloodstream. So through the bloodstream, it can cross into the blood brain barrier. It goes through the blood brain barrier depending on the the hydro uh how fat soluble it is. The higher the fat solubility, the more likely it'll pass into the blood brain barrier. But the more water soluble it is, it does it it has a harder time going through. But basically it goes through, it acts into the CNS of uh, the central nervous system. It'll, you know, have its action there. And then usually we'll see with these muscle relaxants you'll see it work within 30 minutes to an hour or two that's when the you'll first start seeing the effects of those medications and they last anywhere from four to six hours to anywhere 12 to 14 hours that's like the general half-life or like the time it takes for half of the chemical the active ingredient to be eliminated from the body and some are eliminated through the liver and, and another majority of them are eliminated through the Kidneys, so I'll touch upon which ones you can't take if your, you know, if your liver is not doing so well, or if your kidneys are not doing so well. But yeah, we'll talk about that in the future.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And so, the the medications we take. Uh, they go through a pretty thorough process. I don't know the exact mileage, but if you were to take all the blood vessels in your body, it's it's a very long distance. And so the drugs themselves go through a lot of different processes, has to go through and get processed in the liver, and has to cross that blood-brain barrier. And... Um, thank you so much for sharing like the amount of time it takes for this medication to be into effect because um, earlier in this episode, you were talking about how I think the the flex rule is very similar um, to tricyclic antidepressants which is actually an episode that we had uh, a few weeks ago and usually with tricyclic antidepressants in that episode they talked about how it actually takes a little bit longer for that medication to take into effect i think for them it was like a, it was a couple of weeks as compared to say something like this where it actually takes i think you said 30 minutes to an hour so it's really interesting to see that and um, the the, uh, the effectiveness will actually depend on I think you said it, it's depending on the chemical itself versus the actual dosage. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so since this actually acts on the central nervous system and causes relaxation, um, are there any other side, are there any side effects or uh, other effects that happen when taking this medication in?
1: Yeah, sure. So anytime we're dealing with the nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs, discover hero bread. nervous system and in this case we're causing a depression or slowing down of the central nervous system we're always going to see common side effects like sedation dizziness you're going to see a fall risk in elderly patients so you want to watch out you're over a certain age cannot be taking it with the cyclobenzaprine like i said before it's like a tricyclic antidepressant you're going to watch out for patients who have already been taking antidepressants an older class called maois or monoamine oxidase inhibitors it's like an old school type of medication so with that you're going to have increased amount of serotonin. And the increased amount of serotonin causes a syndrome called serotonin syndrome, where you're going to have like inc- rapid, heart, uh, you know, rapid heart rate, blood pressure is going to hit the roof. You, uh, sometimes it can cause as worse as like seizures and such. So you got to watch out for these kind of interactions or uh, side effects with the medications. In patients that are going to be started with the cyclobenzaprine, uh, they suggest that if you're already taking an MAOI, um antidepressant that you wait at least two weeks until after you actually stop the maoi to start taking cyclobenzaprine that's how um that's how strong the evidence is with that interaction and that's just cyclobenzaprine you also want to watch out for patients who have any sort of cardiac conditions so like arrhythmias heart block i would say just avoid cyclobenzaprine if you have a heart condition not the greatest uh, medication to take. There are alternatives, obviously the other two that I have, but cyclobenzaprine definitely stay away from in that case. If I talk about methocarbamol, you want to avoid that in patients with epileptic disorders because it can lower the seizure threshold, which essentially means anything that if you have like seizures that are triggered by certain things like, you know, like flashing lights or anything like that in patients who already have epilepsy, methocarbamol is going to, you know, cause a seizure quicker. Also, you're going to look out for either brown black or green colored urine with methocarbamol That's a common side effect. I know that, you know, if you see yourself, you know, producing green urine, you're going to you're going to jump off the wall thinking it's like a you're, you're trying to have a Dr. Seuss book, but that's a general side effect. Nothing to be concerned about, but it is a, it is a normal side effect. Then with the last drug, the metaxalone, that's relatively all right with the dizziness and the drowsiness side effects. So if you were to use that in elderly patients, that's fine. But the only thing of note is that you cannot use scolaxone or metaxalone in anyone with severe kidney or liver impairment. So those are like the main side effects you're looking at with these drugs?
0: That's really important. I think it's really easy for people to go in and get prescribed medications right from the get-go and not really quite sure, especially if you do have a pretty complicated medical history to be able to figure out, well, how can I balance all this stuff? And when it comes to the side effects, yeah, the sedation, dizziness, it's like we're looking at relaxing your muscles. And unfortunately, with medications, when you are taking, say, a pill you're going to be looking at general muscle relaxation. Um, it would be, it would have been great if it was a much more localized, often the localized relaxations will often be done with more localized or pinpoint uh, interventions such as injections. And there are some uh, acupuncturists as well as physical therapists who actually play in the use of dry needling, which is a very localized um, uh, input. And so, thank you so much for sharing uh, a lot about the the side effects but also the interactions that people really need to consider uh given their medical history as well and especially the urine i know that uh yeah any change in urine is is always a is a scary thing and it's actually something that i do ask the patients and clients that i work with in regards to just understanding hydration but also uh, listeners I, I had an episode a while back talking about how uh, i didn't diagnose kidney stones but i actually helped uh, suspect kidney stones in a person who was dealing with a lot of pain, and we were able to get that addressed just from a couple specific questions. Which is why it's important to ask questions or answer as many questions as you can with your provider to the best of your knowledge, because we can get the necessary information to provide you the the best um, information for you. Sunny, this is really eye opening. It's it's huge. I remember seeing patients and they were prescribed these these medication, uh, muscle relaxants specifically, and the general consensus that people got when they had these got prescribed these muscle is that didn't make them feel very good. They were getting tired. Like it in some cases didn't necessarily affect their pain as well. So when I was actually being presented with these scenarios, I was thinking, well, why would patients be given this medication in the first place? And so the class Of these medications, which is muscle relaxants does exactly that it relaxes your muscles. And so it makes me think, okay, well, why do we need muscles to relax in the first place? And I think oftentimes, it's because when you're dealing with pain, we are can be suspecting a possible muscle spasm and that muscle spasm itself needs some sort of way to relax. And so there's a lot of different mechanisms when it comes to muscle spasms. Um, you have your central nervous system, which is stuff like MS and spasticity and stuff like that. But then also from a cellular level, what's really interesting is that our muscles, they, they're relaxed, but they have a little bit of tone. There's going to be a kind of like an electric current going through them. And if you reach enough, if you send enough electric current to that muscle, it'll actually contract it should contract and relax. That's a normal process, a normal function of a muscle. But if a muscle contracts, but it continues to contract so much, it can actually hit this level of what we call tetany uh, or uh tetanek tetany, which means that it's a sustained contraction. And that is where things start to become problematic. It's painful, try to hold a muscle contraction for a long period of time, you're going to burn, it's not going to feel good. So I understand why this would be scheduled in the first place. But what's really interesting, especially when you're dealing with sciatica pain, it's often not really uh, a result of a a muscle spasm. And oftentimes when I find muscle spasms in the back, they often happen because people are using their back muscles too much. You're trying to use your back to do the specific option. So of course it's going to spasm. So that tells us we have to use our hips a little bit more. Before we actually started recording, Sunny, you were talking about a really interesting fact about these medications, about how it's really geared towards short-term use versus chronic use. So can you uh, shed some light on what you were saying before?
1: Yeah. So generally, these muscle relaxants, surprisingly, they're not even first-line treatments either. Studies have shown that they're not better to treat like anything like low back pain, sciatica, they're no better than using an NSAID or like, you know, an ibuprofen or something like that to treat for that pain. But if, you know, if the patient doesn't feel I find any relief with taking NSAIDs, then muscle relaxants are short term use uh, drugs only. Should only be used for a maximum of about 14 to 21 days. And anything beyond that is worsening for, you know, the patient. They, they're, you know, they're going to be you know, chronically drowsy, chronically dizzy, there, there are a lot of side effects or interactions with, you know, if you're on anything else that causes dizziness, like, you know, opioid pain medications. Now, that's a you know, that interaction is, you know, a red flag. You shouldn't be, prescribers shouldn't be prescribing them together, nor should another prescriber prescribe muscle relaxant without looking at the patient's prior history or current list of medications. You know, this collaborative practice in healthcare needs to be addressed more, needs to be looked at more. And the pharmacist almost, feel, uh, you know, we, we feel like we're the middlemen in everything. Every prescriber that prescribe something for the patient we're seeing the you know as they say all roads uh, all all roads lead to rome we're like i feel like uh, pharmacies are like rome we see everything that the patients are taking and we'll we'll generally see that physicians don't talk to each other or don't inquire about patients and these patients uh, unfortunately they are burdened with so many of common prescribed medication, commonly prescribed medications for one illness or interacting medications. And of course, that's where the pharmacist really has to step in. Uh, We step in to make sure that we address that concern and stop any sort of side effects from getting worse or happening in that patient.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's having that interdisciplinary communication is key, Um, allows us to make sure that we're all on the same page. And I think it's important um, especially on behalf of the, the patients and the people who are suffering. Um, there's definitely some really cool uh, softwares and movements that are actually focusing on pushing more interdisciplinary communication. Um, I find that it's really more of like a new age, uh, the newer generation of, of healthcare professionals, such as us, who are focusing on like, listen, we got to talk to each other in order for us to be able to provide the best care. Um, now, that that's one aspect of the matter. Let's talk about like from a patient's and like the, the listener standpoint, right? What what are some of the it, like one or two things that you think are the, the most useful actions? And I didn't give you this question beforehand because it just occurred to me. But mm-hmm. what are the... the one one or two most actionable things that patients can do to advocate for themselves um, in regards to just getting a better understanding of like medications and everything, because yeah, there's definitely a lot of things to consider like the, you know, perhaps the, the multiple different physicians haven't maybe missed a couple of medications and then you're there, but then also it's like, what can patients do to really maximize their, their advocacy um, throughout this process?
1: Sure, what they can do, we you could start off with making a list of all medications that you might have in your house, in your medicine cabinet, things that you're actively taking, list it down, write it down, write down the strength, write down how often you're supposed to be taking it, and also write down any sort of vitamins and supplements that you're taking too, because you never know that there might be an interaction. The next step I do is take that list and uh, try to get an appointment or speak to your pharmacist. That's like the first way to figure out if there's a true drug interaction, because of course, we're sort of the masters of drug interactions and anything to do with the medications so we can we we could like be the first the first line of defense for patients to be like you know don't take in uh once we consult with the physicians we can advise the patient to be like don't take that anymore continue taking this other medication but of course you can start off with going to the pharmacist first definitely meet with them they can do something called a comprehensive med- medication review a cmr if you'd like if they do offer that at your local pharmacy so essentially they might ask you to bring every all your medications that you take Bring it into bring it into the pharmacy with you, and then what I usually do with my patients is I'll look at every single medication, write it down, and then I'll also ask them ask them why are you taking Do you know why you're taking, you know, metformin? And if they can answer it correctly, then it's good. If they can't answer what uh, why they're taking a certain medication, then you know you question are they really supposed to be taking that medication or is, is there not enough education uh for them to take it so really figure out whenever you're getting a new medication ask those questions to, at the counter you know why am i taking this medications ask about side effects don't be in a rush to leave the pharmacy counter when you're checking out with the new medication that you might have questions about we're here to always like answer all your questions and such and um, If you have any concerns, we're here to adjust them. So definitely in order to advocate for your own health, definitely play a huge part in that. So that's my advice.
0: Huge. Talk to your pharmacist, ask questions, write it all down. That's allows you to keep track of a whole bunch of different things, which also it's important, especially if you're dealing with pain for a long period of time. Obviously, definitely record your medications, but also a really useful tool for your listeners to help you understand how your pain is actually behaving Keeping something as simple as a pain journal is going to be really important. And that way, you can write, At this time, I felt pain. And as you are mapping out your pain journey, we can identify what your triggers are and also the activities that will bring your pain down. It gives us more information, and no information, no new detail is too minute. Sonny, this was extremely eye opening. I learned a ton. And I also think that the listeners have as well. For the listeners out there who want to get in touch with you, I know that you also do pharmacogenomics. Tell us a little bit more about that and how people can get in touch with you.
1: Yeah, sure. If you want to reach out to me, I have a website right now. It's Doctor D R Sunny S O N N Y S H A H. Dot com that's my website if you go right now it's in its preliminary phases and uh, you can reach out to me also on threads and on Instagram also Dr Sunny Shah so with pharmacogenomics what we're doing we're finding out that since I think the last 10 15 years they finally mapped most or of all if not all the human genome and we're figuring out which sorts of uh, what sorts of parts of your DNA influence how your drug how your body reacts to medications most of the time. Your body relies on your liver, like I had mentioned before. Your liver is the main point of metabolism, and there are these proteins. I'm just gonna go very scientific, and if you have any questions, you can always ask me. But there are these SIP uh, proteins in the in the liver that are enzymes that break down certain medications. And if you're if you have a certain type of genetic sequence, if you have a certain type of DNA, you might not be able to break down certain medications. So that's very important. So what that might present as is if you start a new medication like let's say let's just give a really good example plavix or clopidogrel it's a it's a common blood thinning medication given to patients post uh, heart attacks or strokes it's a pro drug so it relies on your liver to be metabolized into its active form, but there's a subset of the population that actually cannot metabolize it to its active form. So in those cases, you're going to have patients that have repeat heart attacks, stroke, and we've unfortunately seen that. But these pharmacogenomics testing, we can figure that out ahead of time and get it to your cardiologist if you have one or even your general practitioner and they know which drugs to avoid prescribing and which ones to actually prescribe for you and um that's just like it in a nutshell if you want more info definitely stop by
0: my social and my website Yep. Absolutely. Listeners, if you didn't get a chance to write that down, I'm actually going to be putting his contact information into the show notes. So yeah, you'd want to be able to look at how your genes play into your drug interactions. Dr. Sonny Shah is the person to go to. Sonny, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. No, no thanks for having me, Ashley. This was
1: great. And this is my first time on a podcast. So thanks for helping me out.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast. And for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient-therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice, and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider.